Columbine was a second family. And I, I really believe this, that, you know, people say Columbine needed me, but I needed Columbine more than they needed me. And it helped me heal. The memories of the 13 give me the strength and inspiration. And when I need them most, they are always with me. We have mourned their death, but we have also celebrated their lives. While they are no longer with us physically, their spirits remain with us. That was Frank DeAngelis, former Columbine principal, speaking at the 2007 Columbine Memorial dedication. April 20th, 1999 profoundly changed his life forever. Some things happened that day I can't explain, but just accept. And as I ran out of my office, I saw a gunman coming towards me. And so my worst nightmare became a reality. There were some girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to a physical education class. And I ran to them because they were in harm's way. And they would have been a um, good chance they would have died. And so basically, I went to the gymnasium area because I wanted to get away from the shooter. And all of a sudden, I pull on the door and it's locked and we're trapped. And I had a suit on that day. And in my pocket, I had my keys. And I had a key set or a key ring of about 35 keys. And I reached in my pocket. Girls are screaming. Shots are getting louder. First key I pull out, I stick in the door. And it opens the door on the first try. And if I wasn't able to find that exact key on the first try, there's a good chance I wouldn't be here along with the girls. Frank found solace in his faith and the ability to help the school and the community heal. Faith is very important to me, but I was questioning it because of everything I witnessed. I saw a kid's face that was shot off who fortunately survived, uh, walked through pools of blood. So I was questioning a lot of things in my life. And a couple of days later, I went down to the church where I was a parish member for 20 years, uh, St. Francis Cabrini, and Father Ken Leone said, Frank, you know, you were spared for a reason. Now you need to rebuild that community. And I took that pledge, and he said, it's going to be a difficult journey, but you don't have to walk the journey alone. And Frank did stay. He was a primary figure in the school's healing after the tragedy, and he vowed to remain in his position until the preschoolers at the time of the shooting had graduated. He fulfilled that promise, retiring in 2014. He now spends his time speaking across the country about Columbine and about how to deal with the fallout from school shootings. My conversations with Frank, he had lots of insight, but one aspect of our talk that resonated was the complexity of the issue as America attempts to prevent the next Columbine. When people ask me, what do, you, what do we need to do as a school? I said, what do we need to do as a society? They're all of our kids. I worry about the social media involved in our kids' life. I worry about some mental health issues. And again, not that people that have mental illness are going to commit hideous crimes such as Columbine, but there are kids crying out for help. I look at the family structure. It's much different than when I first started at Columbine. So we need to look at all these things, and it's not one thing that's going to fix it. I'm Denver Post reporter Kyle Newman. And I'm Amy Brothers, a multimedia producer. We're examining the media coverage of Columbine from multiple perspectives on a three-part podcast series, Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media. Here in the final episode, we'll look at how the coverage of school shootings has evolved as social media has changed the way we find and share information. 
We'll also discuss the no notoriety campaign that's emerged in the wake of even more school shootings. And we'll talk about some of the positive impacts that have emerged from the darkness of that day. The infamy of school shooters like the Columbine duo can live on perpetually via a quick Google search. Principal DeAngelis wants people to be on guard against that. Now what I tell people if and when I meet with parent groups and when I meet with school officials, if you have kids, these kids were not even born when Columbine happened, but they, if they are infatuated with the two killers, that's a red flag. So as we were in production for this podcast, a pretty scary example of this infatuation played out in real life. I'm going to bring on our breaking news editor, Noelle Phillips, to tell us what happened. So on Monday... A young woman who was 18 years old, who reportedly had an obsession with the Columbine tragedy, flew from Miami, Florida to Denver, Colorado, and almost as soon as she got here, she bought a shotgun. And this launched an intensive manhunt throughout the metro area in the Front Range that went on from Monday through Wednesday morning when she was found dead of a self-inflicted wound at Mount Evans. So can you tell me about how the community and how the Jeffco Sheriff's Department responded to this? Sure. So we first heard about, in the public, of a lockout at Columbine High School and other Jefferson County schools. So we start following it and just kind of, and then the lockouts start spreading to other school districts. And that was kind of the first inkling of, Wait a minute, there is something is going on. And then it took probably, it was late, it's probably about the time school was letting out on Tuesday when it really became clear, wait a minute, they're looking for a specific person. There was a bolo put out. What is that? Yeah, in law enforcement, that's be on the lookout. And it had her name, her age, that she had an infatuation with Columbine. That's how they described this and considered armed and dangerous, it naturally causes anxiety. Especially in a community where, yeah, this has happened. We're on, yeah. It's happened there before. It's the 20th anniversary. Throughout the years, people have proven to be just obsessed with this massacre from 1999. People make pilgrimages there. That's been reported just to see it or be touch it. Yeah, that's really creepy. Yeah, anytime you have a police sending out warnings of someone being armed and dangerous, you're going to be nervous, especially if you have a child in school and you don't know where this person is. I previously talked with Jefferson County Captain Jimmy Lucas, who was on scene at Columbine during the shooting, about how much attention the school gets and about how they deal with it. Some adults, too, today that are infatuated by Columbine. We get international as well as national threats. Um intelligence daily. Um, Folks that have no business being at Columbine go there because they're infatuated with what happened. You see it on social media all the time. And so the social media in some ways has, has been a good tool for law enforcement to try to do the best good in recognizing potential problems coming out. Um, But in some ways it's been bad too, because there's a whole culture of folks that are infatuated with incidents like this. The effect of people obsessing over these shooters 
It's a dangerous phenomenon that turned the Columbine perpetrators into idols for other potential shooters. That's why there's been such a strong push since the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012 to not give any credence to mass murderers. The No Notoriety campaign does just that by asking media to adopt a policy which does not name or show photos of them. Author Jacqueline Shieldkraut cites in a 2016 study in her book, Columbine, 20 Years Later and Beyond, that the New York Times printed the names of the shooters six and a half times for every one mention of a Columbine victim. The Denver Post printed the names of the shooters twice as often as the names of the victims. Well, I mean, a, a major part of it is is that the focus has to be less on the perpetrators and more on the victims. Um, there's a campaign that was started after Aurora by Tom and Karen Cheeves, whose son Alex was murdered in the theater shooting, um, called No Notoriety. And it really advocates for limiting the name or the use of the name and the image of the shooter. You can still report all of the details. You can still say the perpetrator or the shooter, but you stop giving them identity. Because giving them identity, especially in such a very public way, is what they're looking for. That's why they're going out and committing a public mass shooting versus committing suicide. The Denver Post tries to minimize the use of mass killers' names, but we don't omit them entirely because we must factually cover the news. For the purposes of this podcast, the Denver Post chose to adhere to the no-notoriety philosophy. As we came to the editorial decision that coverage of Columbine 20 years later does not warrant a rehashing of the names. For this podcast, it would not add journalistic value. I talk with Jacqueline about striking a balance between reporting the news honestly and potentially giving the shooters the infamy that they desire. You can say his name once and then talk about him as the perpetrator. That removes the identity. It's not saying we don't want to understand what this individual did, because you're right. There is a value of understanding you know, his background and what events he experienced leading up to the shooting and why he did that. But the same, it, the same way we would say his name, which is a first and last name, two words, we can use two different words, which is the perpetrator, and not give him that attention that he was clearly seeking. Denver Post reporter Kieran Nicholson described the journalistic evolution in that regard and his opinions on the best way to balance the public's right to know with potential future harm when covering mass murder events. I think when we were initially reporting, it had to be done. Um, certainly in the initial stage of reporting, we had, we had to go there with it. And it was painful at times because a lot of the victims didn't want the press to do that. Um, all these years later, I think it's easier to um, dismiss them and, and not have to use their names. Um, I think anybody who probably listens to this program, it's pretty incredible you, you can name the pair. Uh, I, I think that was part of their, part of their um, ill, um, evil plan. And so now, you know, whether it's Stoneman Douglas or Newtown, should the media, like, revise their approach? Should they not name them at all in the initial reports? Should it be very fleeting? I mean, what's, what's the best modern-day media strategy for covering these school shootings and not giving the perpetrators the infamy they, they desire? Yeah, I, you know, if we're a journalist and we're reporting, I, we, I think we have to name them. I think we're committed to naming them initially because, the, you know, the public needs to know, the public has a right to know um, who these people are. And so initially, I don't have a problem with it. I, I, and I, 
but I think you should, um, collectively, we should be careful about how we use it and how we approach it. And then after a certain, certain amount of time, we can certainly let that die down or never have to, uh, to use um, those names again. Noel and I talked about the no notoriety philosophy and about how we reported the events of the last few days. So we take the whole no notoriety movement seriously and in large part try to respect that. So in all of our Columbine coverage this week, I would guess that you've never seen the actual names of the people who caused that tragedy. Um, but in this situation, police put out a be on the lookout for this person and there's a manhunt going on and we have a duty to report to our readers who police are looking for and why. And it is chaotic and we have to make decisions on the fly. Um, they're not made by one person. They are made by groups of reporters and editors working on the stories. Do you ever worry that us reporting on situations like this will cause someone else to harm themselves or others? Yes. How, what kind of conversations do you have with your reporters, other editors about navigating that? All right. So yesterday, um, when we found out that she had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, I, we had, you know, that she shot herself. We even had that she'd shot herself in the face in the story. And another reporter in the newsroom, the health reporter, Jessica Seaman, who's covered suicide a lot, came over and said, hey, I don't know if you guys have read these tips from Pointer and other prof news professional organizations about covering suicides, and you've got some stuff in there that you probably ought to dial back. I talked it over with Jessica. I read the literature that she had passed along to me and agreed, yeah, that was unnecessary. It was too graphic. People really didn't need to know that. In the heat of the moment when we're stuff is constantly changing, you know, I probably should have been a little bit – I questioned myself a little more on that. Um, then so we rolled that back, took that graphic detail out, and then yesterday evening when everything was over – I sent an email to all the reporters on my team telling them, please read these tip sheets. Let's talk about it. Let's learn how to report on suicide respectively and accurately. So we do self-reflection. And even today, these conversations the day after have continued um, so that we can do better next time. Former Denver 7 reporter Mitch Jelnicker said he had those very discussions at his station. But I will say that not mentioning a shooter's name was something that was a part of my thought process long before Columbine, having covered Oklahoma City bombing, and then before that, the Edmond Post Office Massacre, which maybe fortunately now a lot of people don't remember, but 14 people were shot and killed in a post office back in the late 80s. I can't really recall the exact year. And even then we said, well, we've got to make sure we don't keep saying the shooter's name. Let's talk about the victims here. So there is a fascination or a desire to know who did this to us, who did this to these kids, to this family, whoever it may be. So we need to know some, but I think we can be careful in how often we mention those names. Then Columbine happened, and after that, several other of these things happened. It's interesting. We start to get calls on the newsroom saying, 
you mentioned the, the shooter's name and you need to mention the victim's name more often. I said, we, we consciously do that. We just mentioned it just a few minutes ago on the 5 o'clock news because it was something that happened in court. But we already do that. And we were tr- in the process of doing that. But now the audience actually thinks of that. Now they know to ask us that. Because I can remember way back in the 80s doing a post office massacre and saying to a neighbor, like, well, we weren't going to say the shooter's name. They're like, why? And I'm like, because we thought that the victims might be more important in this situation. Oh, and they never thought of it. Well, now the viewer thinks of that, and the reader of a newspaper article thinks of that. Part of why the reader is more aware is because of social media. It's increased the speed of information and changed how we communicate with each other. We talked with two current Columbine High School students, Rachel Hill and Kylie Tyner, about their high school experience. Both Rachel and Kylie have it together. They're applying for colleges, studying for tests, and talking about spring break. You know, normal high school stuff. But when I asked them if they ever thought about a high school shooting happening in their school today, I think Rachel's answer was really telling. I don't really think about it very often in class. I just, you know, go out my day. There are times, like, kind of rarely, that I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what if a shooter came in? And actually today, I was thinking... Like, what would happen if I went to school one day without my phone? Because I'm on my phone a lot, and it's probably not good for learning. I was like, I should try that one day. I should just not bring my phone to school. And then I was like, but what if a shooter comes in and I have to call my mom? Like, that's what I thought about. So I probably will not ever not bring my phone to school. This says a lot about the difference between today and 1999. First, school shootings are often in the back of students' minds, and second, phones are very much a part of the equation. Obviously, cell phones weren't the norm and there is no social media to document what happened at Columbine. In contrast, Parkland played out on social media in real time. Kylie remembers how she found out about the shooting. Um, I remember I was in chemistry class on the day of the shooting and I was like on Twitter and I saw like, oh my God, there's another school shooting and it just like after that, I, like, was just consumed by it for weeks. Like, it was really weird because, like, in our school, it it was, like, after the shooting happened, there was, like, this, like, huge, like, weight over the school. And it was, like, we weren't talking about it, but everyone needed to talk about it. And so the day after the shooting, my teacher said, like, what he learned from, like, living through it was, like, do not, you cannot live in fear. And that really stuck with me. Parkland had a profound effect on both Kylie and Rachel. It started them on a path of activism to try to do something about school shootings. Social media lets them and other student activists bypass traditional media to be heard. The students themselves are at the forefront of it all with strong voices all their own. And Kylie has connected with other student activists across the country on social media. Because of social media, it gives more people a overall platform and access to information that older generation didn't have as easy access to. So when there's like an active shooter happening at a school, we are watching it while we're in school. Like we know as much details as that are coming out right away, which is just a crazy aspect of it. But also the organizing that comes behind social media is like none other. Another example of how communication is changing is a tool Colorado has come up with. It's called Safe to Tell. 
The Safe to Tell initiative provides an anonymous outlet for tips on potential threats, and these threats are then vetted and given to law enforcement to act upon. You can call Safe to Tell at 1-877-542-7233 if you think someone is a threat to themselves or others, and it will be taken seriously. Steve Wyant explains why. Our schools are considered sacred ground, if you will. And that's just one of the things that has changed. Anytime we hear something about a school, a threat, even if it's a, uh, it's probably just a junk report, we don't take it like that. We go to it. We respond and we take it. It's pretty darn serious around here. Um, and we get a lot of false reports on our safe, safe to tell system, but they treat each one of them as if it's the real deal each and every time. So, yes, we jump. We jump on those kinds of things. The hypervigilance to prevent the next Columbine is because, as time has proven, a Columbine event can happen anytime and anywhere. We've seen that twice already at high schools in Colorado since then, at Platte Canyon in 2006 and at Arapahoe in 2013, where a female student lost her life on both occasions. As we look back on how the media reported on Columbine, it's with hope that we can learn from our mistakes, honor the victims so that they aren't forgotten, and potentially move forward with hope, guarding against future potential attacks. I can't believe I've never been here before. This is only my second time. So Kyle and I came to the Columbine Memorial because we wanted to get out of the recording studio, kind of step away from trying to report on what it was like to report on Columbine and just experience it as humans again. So we're out here and it's a beautiful late April day. Snowed recently, so lots of snow on the foothills over to the west of us. Of course, the school just over the hill beyond all these bricks and inscriptions. Yeah, and the memorial's kind of built with some red rocks. There's some quotes on a wall. Um, it's kind of a circular in nature. There's actually a film crew here probably <laughs> recording something on the upcoming anniversary as well. So even 20 years later, the, the media still reporting. Still out here. Yeah, yeah, they're still doing their thing. Dedicated to those who were injured at Columbine High School, to all those who were touched by the tragic events of April 20th, 1999. Some of the quotes they have out here. A kid my age isn't supposed to go to funerals. It's still Littleton. It's still home to me. This is our home. And those two guys took away plenty and way too much and 13 lives. They weren't taking anything more away from us. And so you kind of bow your, your back and you, you stick together and, and we were gonna, we were not gonna lose our school and our home and our, our, our rebel family. But you're human first. And the, the day that you, uh, you disconnect from that, that connection to the humanity of your subjects is the day that um, you're probably not doing your job. I don't think our high school was any different than any other high school in America. People talk about defining moments in their lives, but I didn't let this one define me. All, these are all these quotes from students. students, unnamed students. I mean, I'm hopeful 
because the other option, you know, being a pessimist is just not the way I want to live my life. Because even if things don't change and even if school shootings still happen, which they will, they will still happen, which is really sad, but they will. But living that way is not sustainable. My dad turned away and cried. I mean, as, as a, a dad myself now, that one, that one tugs at me the most. Yeah, and this quote here is pretty powerful. It brought a nation to its knees, but now that we've gotten up, how have things changed? What have we learned? I am never gonna give up hope. Most people, if you talk to most people about me, I'm, I'm a pretty positive person, and I try not to dwell upon the negative and build upon the positive. So we're entering kind of like an inner circle within the circle in Columbine. There's a ribbon that says never forgets in the middle and the names of students who were killed are on the outside. Cassie Bernal, Stephen Kernow, Corey DePooter, Callie Fleming, Matt Kector, Daniel Mauser, Danny Rohrbach, Dave Sanders, Rachel Scott, Isaiah Scholes, John Tomlin, Lauren Townsend, Kyle Velasquez, my beloved 13. I recite their names every day, and each day I recite their names, I see their faces looking upon me. I'll never forget it. Bearing Witness is brought to you by the Denver Post. It's hosted by me, Kyle Newman, and Amy Brothers, and is written by me, Amy, and Katie Rausch, with editing help from Matt Schubert, Patrick Trailer, Matt Sebastian, and Mario Sinelli. Bearing Witness is produced by me, Amy Brothers, and Katie Rausch. Additional audio in this episode is by Denver Post photographers Young Chang and Aaron Ontraveris. We want to give a huge thanks to everyone who is willing to come on this podcast we know Columbine isn't always easy to talk about. Special thanks to KMGH, Denver 7, and the Associated Press for use of audio from their archival footage. Our music in this episode is by CCH Audio, Audio Earth, and The Muse Maker. If you've appreciated this podcast, please go to denverpost.com and subscribe.